the Y curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. It's one of the most important years in modern British politics. Rishi Sunak faces electoral meltdown. Labour seems set to take up the reins. The SNP could have power wrested from it in Scotland for the first time in 17 years. But none of this is certain. So how will the landscape change? And what will happen with the key issues? The cost of living, failing public services, migration, Europe. How different will the UK be in 2024? The why curve. So, yeah, the question is, isn't it, is Rishi mm. going to last? I mean, first of all, not, is he going to last till the next election? Or is he going well, to... Not, they can't surely change the... Um, Change, change that leader. I mean, it'd be monkers. Yeah, but you wonder. I mean, he he keeps on throwing tantrums, doesn't he? I mean, he's getting very tetchy when yeah. he's giving uh, talks. But, and but but I kind of feel historicalness because I've I've been here before in the nineties. It was always there. Oh well, John Major can't possibly win an election, and he did in ninety two. Hmm. The capacity for the Labour Party to stuff up to stuff up is considerable, and yeah. one shouldn't underestimate that. And I think that's why things are being mm, so carefully so you done. You think therefore the longer they wait, they're thinking well, you things might know. not be going well for us but they can't get any worse than they are now so we'll something see something could happen something yeah. uh, some black swan event of which none of us know well, anything about well yeah i mean there's uh, several things going on in the background well, there i are. mean there's you know there's it's not just the economy obviously geopolitics could play, could, play an could, could make part. it make a big difference uh, which worked for margaret thatcher didn't it you know all we need yeah. is someone to invade a british colony and uh, it's on for everybody isn't yeah, yeah, it really yeah. no, get it the fleet is. out and uh, you know and win the next election it it's been be, done before yeah it could be a very interesting year essentially in mm. in politics and we may not come out with what we expect but let's get a sense of what what people who study this are thinking well let's talk now to tim bale who's professor of politics at queen mary university of london so tim i'm looking at the latest ipsos poll which has got 41 percent labor 24 percent conservative labor's actually losing a bit of ground not the, much the tories aren't really going anywhere reform uk now polling at seven percent which is the highest ever for ipsos uh, and rishi's problem is his personal popularity it's falling 51 percent have an unfavorable opinion compared to 40% at the start of the year. It's not going well for him, is it? No, it certainly isn't. Actually, he seems to have followed the Conservative Party down to the bottom of the barrel, uh, as it were. I think there was some hope when he first came in that he would somehow pull up uh, the party's ratings. But in fact, uh, it's either pulled him down or he's just gone down with it. Uh, the public really don't seem to have warmed to him. And indeed, some would say have got wise to him, um, possibly because he's tried out all sorts of ways of combating that. You know, he was going to be the change. Uh, then he was going to be stability. Then he was going to be the change again. Uh, and I think that lack of any consistent message, plus the fact that clearly he's failing, I think, to deliver on uh, at yes. least three or four of his by promises. Um, has yeah, and the inflation thing isn't exactly in his control, is it? No, and that's the one he's been celebrating. But I think most people, although they're not particularly well up on the whys and wherefores of the economy, know that that isn't necessarily something in the government's control. Uh, and also, of course, he's got this obsession with stopping the boats, um, which you know may have played well were it working, but it doesn't even seem to be working. And I think that lack of trust in the government's immigration policy is really pulling him down, particularly, you know, I think now, because it's so associated with him personally. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a curious one, isn't it? Because, I mean, actually, were we too concerned about stopping the boats? Was that a major electoral issue? I mean, didn't he manufacture it to try and deflect from everything else? And as you say, he's not even delivered on that one. Well, I mean, I think that partly reflects Conservative anxieties about uh, the electoral coalition that they managed to build in 2019 and the fear that, 
voters, you know, to use that cliche, and those red wall seats might be uh, drifting away from the Conservative Party and feeling that perhaps immigration was one of those cultural issues that might help pull them back. Uh, but I, I think, you know, as you're suggesting, it was very unwise to make such a blanket promise, um, especially when you consider actually that the Conservative Party has been in trouble really since 2010 uh, when it comes to immigration by overpromising and, and under delivering. It would seem like they're making the same mistake again and again and again. It's taken out of uh, the Australian sort of like copybook on, on how to win elections, though, stop the boats. I mean, that was, you know, that's won a couple he's, of he's elections. He's got a major Australian advisor, Isaac Levito. Exactly. So he's just going, going, going through past policies that have but, worked over there. But, but Tim, he's looking ahead at all this. I mean, in the same way we're discussing it, I guess, you know, some people at least are saying this to him. What does he do this year? Does he go for a May election? Does he go for an, Oct- or an o- October election? Or does he even vaguely try and push it into January of next year? I mean, how would it look to him? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the autumn statement, there was some feeling on the part of the government that they might at least leave the possibility of May open, if only to mm. terrify the Labour Party. Um, and I think, you know, there is the possibility that they will perhaps hold a budget in March with more tax cuts, as they will call them, and and perhaps go early. I, I think that's fairly unlikely now, though. I mean, the, the polls are still pretty bad for them. There doesn't seem to have been much tightening, uh, as you were suggesting earlier. And I think if you look at historical precedent, it's very unusual for a government to um, call an election, which they're almost certainly going to to lose. So I would have thought, you know, the story that we've been telling really for the last few months, i.e. the government will just wait for as long as possible for something to turn up, is probably still the story. In other words, it'll be an October or November election. So they're just trying to minimise the number of seats they lose, in other words. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that they will necessarily see it in in those terms. Um, politicians are amazingly optimistic when it comes to uh, their chances. I mean, I'm sure there are more Conservative MPs who think that they can hang on to their seats somehow than will in fact be the case. But I think the more realistic members of the Conservative Party must look at these polls and must actually dig beneath the uh, headlines in those polls and and realise that probably their, their goose to uh, coin a festive phrase is, is cooked. <laughs> but how cooked is it? I mean, it, it, looking at it, obviously we don't know. As you say, something might turn up, who knows? But assuming it doesn't, assuming we have relatively bad economic data pretty much going on through the next year, are they going... Is it going to be a meltdown? People have talked about comparisons with the Conservative Party in Canada, um, you know, some many years ago, where it almost disappeared. Is it that bad, potentially? I don't think it is that bad. I mean, you have to remember that Labour, you know, needs a massive swing in order to gain a majority of just one. I mean, we're still talking in the order, even if they win some seats that they didn't expect to win, for example, in Scotland, of over over 10% at least... Uh, And that is a a big ask. And there are plenty of Conservatives sitting on massive majorities, which might be vulnerable perhaps to to by-elections, but probably in a general election uh, aren't that vulnerable. So it's, I think, very difficult, famous last words, to see the Conservatives dipping much below, say, 150 seats at the absolute worst. So uh, there was a, a, a Reuters poll in the uh, in the Daily Express. So this is obviously is entirely <laughs> representative of the population as a whole. Uh, and they were asked, who should replace Rishi Sunak? This was uh, right back at the beginning of December. 47% said he should be replaced by Nigel Farage. 16% Suella Braverman. 14% Boris Johnson. 11% Penny Morden. Uh, 2% David Cameron. Uh, I mean, are there going to be some changes at the top? 
before the next election, I think that is quite yeah. doubtful, to be honest. I mean, I think most Conservative MPs fear that they will be seen as even more of a laughing stock than they currently are, were they to replace their leader mm. again. And I think there's no obvious candidate sitting in Parliament at the moment, as there was, for example, when Boris Johnson was on the back benches having resigned from Theresa May's government, who could take over and pull them out of the nosedive in the same way that he did in, in 2019. So I, I think it's probably still Rishi or bust for, for most of them, even though they are quite unhappy with him. I mean, I think what we saw over the uh, Rwanda legislation, the ERG and, and the various other groups, um, you know, in some ways, conducting a kind of you know a repeat of the guerrilla warfare that we saw under it Theresa was strangely May reminiscent of that period, wasn't it? With you know the yeah, Star in, Chamber in, in, meeting and all this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In an attempt to you know on on the part of some of them at least, perhaps to precipitate some kind of leadership contest. I think we saw that move fail, and it's difficult to believe that it will succeed. I think before the election, obviously after the election, all bets are off. It's difficult to see Rishi Sunak sticking around. And, and that's when we'll see um, some of the people mentioned um, come into contention. A lurch to the right, do you think, almost inevitably? Well, I mean, if you go on precedent and look at what happened to the Conservative Party after 1997, you would expect that to happen, um, you know, for them to double down on this kind of populist radical right agenda that is um, very um, consonant with, you know, Suella Braverman supporters, uh, perhaps with Kemi Badenoch supporters. Um, they will be two people in the running. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it will probably take an election or two if they lose next time around for them to, quote unquote, come to their senses, just as it did after 1997. In fact, it took three elections uh, at that point uh, before they realised that, that, you know, something had to change. Uh, I think you, you have to look at what's happened to the Conservative Party since Brexit and, and say that, you know, they have really slipped their moorings as a centre-right party. And it will take quite some time, I think, for them to, if you like, to um, extend the metaphor, sail back into, you know, a sensible port. Right. So you're saying they've lurched too far to the right. Because, I mean, there's a question, isn't there, about just where is the where's the market for those votes? Because, I mean, you would have th thought, well, maybe in the north, uh, in those red wall seats, people have been promised so much. And they perhaps thought, well, yeah, we, you know, the country was getting too soft. If we had a hard right government, then mm -hmm. our standard of living might improve. But, I mean, they've been that's not worked for them. So presumably that's going to be a tough call to try and argue that case. Yeah, uh, but I, I think that many Conservatives, to some extent, live in a bubble and believe that the Express, which we've already talked about, the Mail and the Telegraph, have a kind of mainline into Middle England and still believe that, you know, there are votes that they can harvest there with that kind of agenda. Uh, I think that is very problematic, given that the country is becoming, you know, more multi-ethnic, more socially liberal over time. And a lot of the voters who, for example, delivered Brexit, and many of those voters who delivered the Conservatives a majority in, in, in 2019 are gradually, if you like, dropping off the end of the electorate yeah. uh, and being replaced by people who, I, who don't so, really so share those a, values. It, you had, so it is a, a bit of an echo chamber, isn't it, is what you're saying? Let's include GB News on that, because there's a photograph yeah. taken of uh, Inside Number 10. They had GB News on, some, supposedely. Someone saw mm. from the from the front room. So there's someone watching That's GB what News. So but, but, them and somebody else. So I mean, is it, is it becoming a bit of an echo chamber? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is that kind of media ecosystem in which a lot of conservatives um, exist, and and you know, it does prevent them perhaps from you know taking a step back and and looking at some of the research and some of the polling, which suggests that you know that isn't really a, a long term future for the Conservative Party. Having said that, of course. 
Sorry, so I was going to say it depends where, yeah. where they lose their seats, doesn't it? Almost you never do. Because if they lose a lot in the South, then the, the, the left of the party or the centre of the party is weakened. Whereas if they lose a lot in the Red Wall, it's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really good point. So depending on, you know, who is left after, you know, whether it's a meltdown or a landslide defeat or even just a defeat, uh, I think will to some extent dictate who wins that Conservative leadership contest. But we have to remember, of course, that the MPs only have a limited say in what happens. So they can only decide the final two that goes to the membership. So if um, someone from the populist radical right side of the party, like Kemi Badenoch, um, can get through to the to the membership, um, I think, you know, there is very little chance that someone from perhaps the more moderate side of the party would be able to stop her winning. Yeah. So, and on Rishi's pledges, I mean, we've said, you know, stopping the boats is just about, well, it, it, you know, the one that, that he seems to be focused a lot on at the moment. Uh, he's delivered on one of them, supposedly, in halving inflation. The other's growing the economy, reducing debt. And we're now almost 98% of GDP uh, is, is our national debt, uh, cutting NHS waiting lists. I mean, are they the things that are most important to people? So there was a King's College London survey showed that in terms of issues that will influence voting, 57% said healthcare, 55% did say inflation and the cost of living, uh, which you would have thought would be, you know, in most people's minds. 36% managing the economy, 33% asylum and immigration, which isn't necessarily stopping the boats. I mean, there's the bigger figure, obviously, is those people who are coming legally. But, yeah. And then law and order, taxation. They were the top level issues. Uh, I mean, he's not actually in line with that, is he, in terms of what he's proposing? No, that's quite right. And this comes back perhaps to the bubble we're talking about um, mm. when we're talking about the Conservative Party. I mean, any rational person looking at that would be saying to Rishi Sunak, you know, you've got to get over your message on the economy. Whatever you do, you've got to do something about NHS waiting lists and waiting times. And yet the government is still holding out against the junior doctors. There was a strike before Christmas, for example. That's not going to help at all. Um, the economy, obviously, the government have got fewer levers that they can pull to make something happen um, before the next election. But nevertheless, they can at least deliver a message that it's beginning to work. And yet they are still pursuing uh, immigration as, you know, the, the magic bullet, um, which uh, you know, it may be for some conservative voters if they manage to get flights taking off to Rwanda. But it's difficult to imagine that most voters, you know, now that Brexit's been done um, and they have, you know, as you say, far more important bread and butter considerations on their mind, giving the conservatives a free pass on everything else just because a few people end up in Rwanda. But so isn't, it, isn't this the Farage factor again, though? I mean, the fact that, you know, I mean, Brexit was driven, wasn't it? Because David Cameron felt like he had to do something because Nigel Farage was getting too much of the vote. You know, and that express poll said 47% said want Farage to be in charge of the Conservative Party. And, so and the more significant factor was the amount of votes, it seems, that the Reform Party, yeah. is, which is you know, Tice, obviously, and Farage, um, is going to pull. I mean, so is, it, is, is this it, actually going to be a threat to the Tories it's, itself? It, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it just the same old, same old? Worried about Farage and uh, immigration seems to be the way we can uh, win some of his votes back. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I don't think you can understand what's happened to the Conservative Party really in the last 10 or so years without realising that, you know, its biggest fear is being outflanked on the right, not necessarily because Reform UK, just like UKIP actually, or the Brexit Party can win seats in Parliament. Because Do you not they can, think it will win any? 
No, I, I think it's quite unlikely. But of course, they can bleed votes from Conservative candidates. Uh, and, you know, with the result that Labour and in some cases Liberal Democrat candidates can come through and win. And that's the biggest fear, I think, on the part of the Conservative Party. And certainly if the Reform Party, you know, is polling anything like double figures, that is a serious problem for for the party. I mean, if you look at the 2019 election, uh, you know, the fact that the Brexit party actually stood in some seats we calculated in, in, in the book on, on that election that that probably cost the Conservative Party about 25 seats that it otherwise might have won. So in other words, it would have a majority of, say, 100 and you know, something uh, rather than the 80 it won. And I mean, Conservative Party is fully aware of that. And, and I think you're right. That, to some extent, is helping drive this obsession with um, with uh, with Rwanda and with immigration on top of the fact that I I think it's also to some extent a bit of a displacement activity in the sense that they, they feel that they are a bit powerless on the economy and they feel that they are a bit powerless to do much about the NHS in time. Um, so therefore they're desperately looking for sort of any lever that they can pull and perhaps Rwanda is one of them. Well, all of which I suppose are issues still, the economy, to some extent immigration, to some extent NHS, are going to be big issues for the other half of all this, which is Labour potentially coming into government. I mean, do you feel now, looking ahead from where we are, that Labour is going to fumble the ball somehow, which a lot of people on the left still think they might, um, <laughs> somehow, you know, just seize defeat from the jaws of victory uh, during this year, moving towards potentially becoming the party of government? Well, I mean, because Keir Starmer, his, his uh, approach seems to have changed now from vote for me as your new Labour leader, as vote for me, I'll be a, I'll, I'll be a Tory leader in the Labour Party. I mean, he's really gone right to the well, centre. Well, Thatcher I mean, some, tribute. You, well, I mean, that Thatcher tribute is a perfect example, mm -hmm. isn't it? I mean, he's gone to the centre. Some would say, well, actually, he's dipping a bit into the mm -hmm. right. Well, I mean, I think it's reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. I mean, I think, you know, they look back at 1992, um, for example. Um, they even look back, I think, at uh, 2015 and, and really just don't want to do anything that scares the horses. And I guess the question really is... Is what Labour is saying right now about what it wants to do or doesn't want to do in government actually a reflection of what will happen if and when it does win? Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, if you, if you believe in the Tony Blair, you know, um, winners, new Labour, governors, new Labour, you'll believe that actually they will stick to some of the actually quite orthodox promises that they're making or, or rather not making. Um, in advance of the election. If, on the other hand, you believe that Keir Starmer is rather more, um, you know, to the to the left than than some people imagine, and and given his history, perhaps that is the case. Then what we see now is not necessarily what we're going to get from from Labour from when they're in government. I mean, it's perfectly possible to believe that a Labour Party could win the election and then make the claim that they've looked at the books in detail and um, some of what they were planning. Um, you know, can't quite happen. Uh, they'll have to actually increase taxes, uh, for example, on uh, the wealthy uh, and on property in ways that they didn't imagine they would have to do, uh, and therefore or be able to spend more, more on public services that um, yeah. you know they could. Uh, the, yeah, they I mean, it's a, yes, I mean, you know, if you look at debt, U.S. debt to GDP is about 129 percent. I mean, we're below. I mean, we're about nine. Yeah, they have, they they have got that little thing called the dollar, though. So I think <laughs> yeah, it's rather yeah. easier well, for them to find Canada out. Canada, France, one hundred and thirteen percent. Singapore, one hundred and sixty percent. Japan, two hundred and sixty-two percent. You know, I mean, there's there's an argument, isn't there? We are number twenty-four in the pecking order in terms of uh, highest to lowest GDP per capita. So I mean, you could argue there's wriggle room, but anyway, he won't do that, of course. But I mean, he's, is it dangerous for him to be seen as being? 
too far to the left or more to the left than perhaps he's letting on. Does he, I mean, could he really lose votes on that? Or if he was perhaps a little bit more left right now, maybe he'd win some more. Well, I mean, I think there is a question about the extent to which Labour, by reassuring um, people who previously voted Conservatives, are actually failing to inspire some of those who potentially might uh, vote Labour who did vote, uh, vote Labour in, in the past. So I think that's true. Um, on the other hand, if you believe that, um, you know, that we're not necessarily in an era of kind of, you know, cultural values driving people's votes, but in an era where people are craving competence and craving reassurance, then um, Starmer's strategy probably is, is the better one. But as I say, the real question is whether actually it prefigures uh, a, a Labour government that isn't really going to do very much that's different, or whether actually it's simply a tactic or a strategy uh, in order to make it into power and then do something rather more radical once they're there. Because I guess we've got a a sort of test in a way with the local elections coming. I mean, local elections generally, not a lot of people actually vote, but they are seen as a kind of bellwether. And those are coming up in in May. Is is that the point where we should say, yes, this is something that will go through, that the route of the Tories is almost inevitable, Labour are coming in? Or is it more complicated than that? Well, it's always more complicated than that. But I mean, I think it's interesting to point to local elections, because if you contrast Labour's performance before the 1997 general election in local elections and the sort of three years running up to that, they were actually doing much better than Labour have been doing uh, recently. So I think, you know, those local elections really are worth having a look at. Actually, people can dismiss them. And I'm not saying you've done that um, because, as you say, not many people vote in them. But, you know, they are um, not necessarily better than an opinion poll, but they are to some extent, um, you know, a provider of data that we can factor in as well as opinion polls. And I think if we, if we begin to see that Labour are actually doing as well as New Labour was in the run up to 1997, then I think there's a definite chance that um, we could be, you know, on for a, a landslide victory. So yeah, watch out for those. I think I think they are worth looking at. So I mean, I mean, of course, you know there'll be a lot of protest votes in in those elections, won't there? So when's when's the budget? I should know this, of course. Uh, well, they haven't the... set a date, but I would expect mm. it to be probably in March, and certainly will be right. in March if the Conservatives still want to keep open the possibility of of, of a May election. Um, if they don't, then of course they 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 could do it later. But I think it will be sometime in early spring, simply because if they do want to make some sort of tax cuts, they'll want to have them there uh, and you know going into people's pay packets, as it were. Uh, as but if there, was, if, if, if there was a general election which happened just after those uh, local mm. elections, because London obviously is a significant one, but it mm. is, it's all over the country, isn't it? Mm. So if they did badly in those and they had an election a week later, would that make them by default appear as though they're going to get a worse vote than they would have otherwise? Yeah, who knows? Or- I mean, it's funny. If you think about the 2017 election, um, Theresa May called it before the local elections and then did incredibly well in the local elections and everybody said, oh, she was absolutely right to do that. And then we know what happened yeah. <laughs> at the general yeah. election a few weeks later. So they're not necessarily a hard predictor. But as I say, I think they do provide us with... Um, you know, data that we can add in to to the mix when we're you know trying to but, predict what's going to happen. But you were saying there's there's a big mountain to climb, which there is for Labour. I mean, historically, yeah. they it was the worst result since 1930 something in 2019. Mm. And but the but the fact that we haven't mentioned really is Scotland, because in Scotland you have SNP, which is seems to be on the ropes um, for all sorts of reasons. Potentially, them losing big at that period might give Labour votes in north of the border they haven't had for a long, long time that might just, again, help Keir into power. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the polls at the moment, it's perfectly possible that Labour may pick up 20-odd seats. And, I mean, that would be, a, you know, a, an incredible boon to them, particularly if they don't do as well as perhaps, you know, some Labour people hope they will do uh, in, in England. And it could make the difference, for example, between them being just the largest party in a hung parliament and, uh, you know, a comfortable majority or a reasonably comfortable majority. So, yes, I mean, I, I think most Labour people, though, uh, are still seeing Scotland, if it happens, as, a, as an added bonus. I mean, I think they're very aware that in the end they have to win in England uh, or, you know, win as near as damn it in England to be able to actually, um, you know, become a government. So it, it's not, you know, uh, it's not nothing, Scotland, but it really, I think, as I say, it will be the icing on the cake for Labour. It's not the cake itself. The cake itself is England and obviously to some extent Wales as well. Mm. So what would a Labour Party do? I mean, if we believe what is given in pledges, uh, Keir Starmer's pledges back in 2020 for his leadership bid <laughs> of the Labour Party, he said economic justice, increase income tax for the top 5%, social justice, set a national goal for well-being to make health as important as GDP, climate justice, a Green New Deal at the heart of everything we do, promote human rights and promote peace, put human rights at the heart of foreign policy and review all UK arms sales. You might be talking about Saudi Arabia, perhaps. <laughs> uh, common ownership, public services in public hands, uh, defend migrant rights and immigration system based on compassion and dignity. You might struggle with that one. Uh, strengthen workers' rights and trade unions. But actually, looking at most of those, and there's more, uh, equality, so yeah. equal pay, representation of minorities, uh, abolition of Section 28, which was what Margaret Thatcher passed that banned the promotion of homosexualities mm -hmm. in schools. I mean, some of those, I mean, maybe some of them are a bit on the fringe, but those those top ones, if he went to the electorate now with those, how well would he do, do you think? Um, I mean, I think actually probably they're sufficiently vague and, and, and woolly <laughs> and aspirational for them to, <laughs> to yeah. probably resonate reasonably well. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in, in the end, I mean, it is a cliche, but to some extent it's a cliche because it's true. I mean, governments lose elections, oppositions don't win them. And I mean, I think, mm. you know, he couldn't necessarily go to the country on the manifesto that Corbyn went with in, in 2019 and still win. Uh, but I, I, I don't think, you know, a, a, a fairly sort of centre-left manifesto would hobble the Labour Party, given how unpopular the um, Conservative government is. I mean, I think there is, you know, a mood now for change. It's going to be very, very difficult for the Conservative Party Which to gets, hold back. Yes. So why move to the right? Why shouldn't Labour sort because of hold terrified. They're terrified that, that that something could go wrong. That's that's it. I mean, Tim, they they, they know what's happened in the past. The mm. capacity for Labour to lose is considerable, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is um, the fact that, you know, those defeats in 1992 and to a lesser extent in 2015 are really burned into the brains of the people at the top of the Labour Party. And they want to do everything they can to avoid that at small cost. And I think, you know, they are pursuing this kind of shrink the target strategy, you know, so make themselves small, as it were, so they can't be uh, attacked in the way that, you know, previous Conservative um, governments have attacked Labour oppositions. And of course, with the help of uh, the media, as well, and I think there is still some vestigial, um, you know, concern about what the the print media might do to Keir Starmer and the Labour Party in the run up to the election, and we've already seen that, you know, um, this this past year, uh, with regard to you know Keir Starmer's um, performance as a barrister defending you know various uh, people that the tabloids love to hate. So uh, you yeah. know, I think there will be a lot of that thrown it's around. Awful, wasn't it? As a defence lawyer, he was defending people. Uh, yeah, it's shocking behaviour. Why would he do that? But, <laughs> but Tim, what about the awful, going back over the history, what about the awful word coalition? 
um, which, you know, some people said, well, OK, in this election, which we're, we're sort of putting out there in the south, particularly where it's likely Tories are going to lose quite big. The next party in most many constituencies isn't Labour. Labour doesn't even have a, a kind of operation mm. on the ground in many of these areas. Mm. So if people are not voting Tory, they kind of vote Lib Dem. Now, I mean, who knows what the Lib Dems might get out of this. But if they had something reasonable, they've said already they're not going into coalition with Labour. But, you know, a, a, a sort of uh, another arrangement might be there. Mm. I mean, is, are the Lib Dems likely to be a player? Well, certainly, if um, you know Labour can't quite climb the mountain that needs to climb, they have to be in consideration. I mean, I think you're right that the, the, the Liberal Democrats are unlikely to go into coalition given their experience last time around, and I don't think Labour would actually want to go into coalition with the Lib Dems. But some sort of confidence and supply agreement, um, you know, I, I'm sure would be on the cards. I think the question then would be what exactly the Liberal Democrats would want out of that, and then we get into questions of. Once again, um, proportional representation, you know, would we have another referendum on that? Would we have some sort of royal commission in, into that? Um, certainly, you know, there will be some people in the Labour Party who feel that would be a price worth paying since they themselves support the idea of electoral reform. Right. Would, would the Lib Dems have much to play with, do you think? I mean, were they now what? 12 seats or something like that? Uh, well, I mean, I think they, you know, they stand a reasonable chance of getting, you know, well over 20 and possibly over 30 seats. So, you know, if Labour win big, that doesn't make any difference at all, just as it did in 1997. But I mean, if it is much tighter than currently it looks, then yes, they, they will be a, a force to be reckoned with. And of course, we also have to remember that we're assuming probably wrongly, that if Keir Starmer wins big, he will be able to get all his MPs to vote for whatever legislation Labour puts through. But as we've seen with the Conservative Party, simply having a big majority doesn't necessarily guarantee no rebellion. So again, you know, what the Liberal Democrats think and where they are might be more important to even a majority Labour government than we assume. So given the express readers want Nigel Farage to be the leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> You're very keen Party, on these express readers. Well, oh no, it's, I think it's, you know, it's a useful litmus test for Tory voters, isn't it? So, you know, and Farage is very popular with these people. So, I mean, could we get to the stage where the, the Tory vote is so low that they do some sort of deal with the Reform Party? Like, for example, saying, well, look, we don't want to uh, dissolve each other's vote. I mean, would we ever get to during the election? During the actual election, where the the Tory party actually says, "Well, we're not going to field a candidate in uh, in this constituency. You can have this one because it looks like you might win it Mm -hmm. if you hold back in these other seats." Could they do a deal like that? No, I I don't think the Conservative Party will do that. I I think there is a you know a fundamental objection on the part of most Conservatives to doing that kind of deal. I mean, the question is whether Farage will you know offer them something in the same way as he did in 2019. I think it's unlikely this time around, though. He's made a pledge that he won't do that, and so is Richard Tice. So. I think those kind of stand down arrangements, even unofficially, are unlikely to to happen. Uh, I think, you know, most Conservatives need to be more worried about the possibility of Nigel Farage rejoining the Conservative Party after the next election, possibly getting a seat and then standing um, for leader. Whether MPs would ever see him through to the final two in a contest, I think, is another matter. Yeah. Well, he only made it to number three, didn't he, in the jungle? (laughs) So. <laughs> yes, which is bad enough. There's, there's another jungle he's got to navigate. But, but as we look sort of towards then, you know, if you were uh, project exactly a year forward, as it were, mm. would you be as a betting man? Would you be reasonably confident that, that by that time there will be a, a Labour government with Keir Starmer as Prime Minister in Number Ten at that point in say January of 2025? 
I think that is far more likely than not. I mean, I think the government is running out of time, really, to change the electorate's mind about it. I don't think the move to uh, replace Boris Johnson with uh, another uh, Tory prime minister has worked, although I don't think it would have been much better under Boris Johnson himself. I think Labour has probably done enough to reassure people uh, and probably still will get the votes of people it you know should inspire but actually don't really have much choice about voting for the Labour Party um, to actually secure a majority so I would expect to see that but you know predictions are mugs game right yeah and and uh, the environment seems like it's something that seems to have been avoided or not talked about a great deal mm. I would thought this would be a real wedge issue for Labour to get stuck into yeah I mean I think that comes down once again to not wanting to frighten the horses I mean I think yeah. uh, you know there is a concern on the part of some people that although they want to see progress to net zero and do have some appreciation of the benefits economically of doing that that actually you know they don't want to pay the the personal kind of household costs that might mm. be involved in that uh, they want to have their cake and eat it too and and if you want to win an election I think unfortunately um, you often have to do that rather than telling people like it is there's another election, of course, next year as well uh, in the United States, November the 5th. Uh, I mean, I know this is, you know, we're here to talk about the UK, but I mean, maybe, it, it, you know, there's an influence. There's an awful lot of elections next year. I, mean, I think it's like something like 40% of the, mm. the of the world, isn't mm. it? Yeah, so well. are out to vote. So there's billions of people voting. Uh, but I mean, if, if we had a Trump win, I mean, how does that influence the UK politics? Or is that, you know, they're over there. What do we care? Well, I mean, it's difficult because I guess it depends on timing. We might have had our election um, by then. But I certainly think if Donald Trump, either in the run up to an election uh, or just after, were to um, perhaps endorse one party or another and endorse, you know, one of the the um, uh, the, the candidates for prime minister, uh, it would presumably be Rishi Sunak rather than Keir Starmer. That would probably have a negative effect on the Conservative Party's <laughs> chances rather than a positive. <laughs> like it needs any more negatives. <laughs> well, we'll see how that. Better get in early then. See they? how that plays out. Yeah. Tim, thank you so much for taking us through what you think we might be seeing next year. Um, or this year. This year. Yes. Well, no, this year. Yes, this year. And um, well, indeed, what will happen at the end of this year and leading into next year so we will hold you to it and we'll bring you back and um, uh, and see what your response is when it all happens thanks Tim and happy new year to all of you happy new year yeah, so it's going to be inter- it is going to be an interesting year not just in politics I mean no. what is going to happen with the environment for example well, as yes, well yes you know, and, and many other things that seem to hover over us potentially threatening our very existence you know asteroid anyone or pandemic we can't know about that well who was this government minister who's telling us that we should make sure we've got you know enough water on yeah, hand candle and, or two, and, and candle or two so we're ready. What I loved in that was as well, the government recommendation yeah. was they said uh, you must also make sure that you've got a, a phone yes. that doesn't require electricity. Have um, we got any of those? Well, I mean, there are some, but of course they, they fail to realise that BT is actually mm. busy going through and getting rid of electrifying yeah. all the phones. So by the end of next year, I think yeah. there'll be no phones. Well, we'll, we'll so, all be in, in total disaster with no means of communication. So how are we ready for a disaster? Well, zombie apocalypse is what I think is around the corner. Is that what we're going to talk about next but, week? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. What are the threats to our very existence that we probably don't really have a sense of how much of a threat they are. There are people who look into this yeah, and we will find one and we will find out what exactly it is that we should be most scared of. Are we ready for the next disaster? Well, we weren't really ready for COVID but uh, and who knows what the next one's going to be. So that's next week on The Y Curve. Join us for that. Thanks for listening today. Bye. The Y Curve.